Hello and welcome to another episode of the In Context podcast. Today I have a new friend of mine. This is Dr. Anthony Bradley from over in the US. Uh, hello, Dr. Bradley. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself, letting everyone know who you are and what it is you're currently doing out in the States? Yeah, I am a research fellow at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's a think tank that focuses on finding solutions to poverty. We are an ecumenical think tank, so it's both Protestants and Catholics uh, working together on these issues. I'm also a professor a research professor of theological and interdisciplinary studies at Kuiper College, also in Grand Rapids. If, if your viewers, when I get a sense of where Grand Rapids is, it's right in the middle of the states near Chicago, right uh, just east of, of west of, sorry, just east of Lake Michigan. Right. About three hours uh, north by car of, of Chicago. And I've been working for several years on a lot of comparisons between uh, poverty and issues related to the church in the U.S. and the U.K. I, as I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, I usually spend part of my summer in Belfast, uh, particularly about 30 miles north of Belfast in a town called Ballymena. And working with a, a friend, close friend, uh, Marty McNeely there, who's a pastor working on. Oh, I know Marty. Working... Oh, do you know? <laughs> yeah, oh, right. yeah. He's yeah, a yeah, brilliant surfer, Marty, isn't he? He is, he is, he is. And so I've been working with, with Marty uh, for a number of years there and, and got to know his church and have preached. And, and I'm just interested in some of these issues, sort of addressing the working class communities in the UK and how the church can really do a better job of, of including them in the mission that God has for the kingdom. Awesome. Oh, wow. And what a cool link. Uh, I've not seen Marty for a couple of years, but he's a great guy. Uh, I'll have to give him a shout out. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I contacted you. I'd seen something on social media the other day. And uh, let me just... Uh, I'll get you up so I don't don't misquote. Uh, I'm, I'm famous for that, but I think it was something along the lines of uh, poverty in cities has a way of destroying people's humanity, especially for men. It is culture, but it's not black culture. It's poverty culture, and it doesn't matter what race you are. And and that quote reminded me of when I was growing up as a as a young man. I was between the ages of sixteen and twenty one, and I watched a movie called Boys in the Hood and it was about gang violence in, in California and it focused on a couple of young black men growing up in, in, in the hood. And for me, even though it was filmed in another part of the world, even though it was focusing on the lives of people of a different ethnicity than me, it was the first time I'd seen a film that I could really relate to. The issues that were talked about, I felt was really speaking into my cultural identity. And I just wondered what what you think about uh, a poverty culture is a such such a thing? And if so, what is that? Yeah, it, it really stems from a lot of of men find themselves unemployed. Mm. 
And here's what's fascinating about, about men's culture. And it doesn't matter if it's, if it's in the U.S. or the U.K. or in China or wherever. It's just, I think, the way God made men. When, when men are not gainfully employed, and by gainfully employed, I mean they don't have a job that brings them dignity. Yeah. They don't have a job that, that is well-paying. They don't have a job that improves their skills. They don't have a job that gives them confidence that the future will be better than the past. If, if men don't have good jobs, they're not interested in forming families. Mm. They'll date women. They might have some kids, but they're not interested in marriage because they don't have the economic security for that. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens in a lot of communities is that when, when men aren't gainfully employed and they're not pursuing marriage, the entire community breaks down, the family breaks down. And that has a lot to do with the absence of real economic opportunities, real economic sustainability. So if there are no good jobs, uh, men begin to deteriorate. They don't, they get lost. They don't have a sense of purpose. They don't have a sense of meaning and something fills the void. Hmm. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. It could be sport, right? It could be football. Hmm. Interesting that in a lot of communities where there's not a lot of jobs, sport becomes really important because sport gives you a sense of meaning, community, purpose, identity, connection, networking, et cetera. And, And it doesn't matter if it's in New York City or in Manchester, England, uh, or in Dubai, well, well, probably not Dubai. I don't know if there's poverty there, uh, or in in New Delhi, India, Mm. right? And so what happens is when there is a a context where men don't feel empowered and, and they don't feel a sense of purpose and meaning, they act like it. Yeah, yeah. And it just doesn't matter where it is. And that's why I was in part so fascinated by some of these connections, because I saw it. I saw that that in in downtown Chicago or in Los Angeles or New York City, wherever you had communities that did not have sustainable opportunities for employment, you had men who were deteriorating. Mm. And so when I traveled to the UK, I saw the exact same thing in Belfast. I saw the exact same thing in parts of Edinburgh. You read about communities in Glasgow, right? I mean, it's the same thing. And so poverty culture really does undermine a man's sense of dignity. And when that happens, he's much more willing to live a life that uses other sorts of idols to fill that void. A man gets his sense of meaning and purpose and his sense of of his life mattering by being violent. Mm. Well, now I'm a man. By being a womanizer, now I'm a man. By getting a lot of cash by selling drugs, well, now I'm a man. So if the meaning-making context for what it means to be a man is, is something that pushes him toward immorality and self-sabotage that becomes the new masculinity culture. Mm. And so when the young lads, we've seen this in Northern Ireland, 
when the when the young lads look and see what does it mean for me to be a 25-year-old man or a 45-year-old man, their role models, the minute they aspire to be, aren't doctors and lawyers and bankers and and guys in finance. Their role models are drug dealers and womanizers and gang leaders. And that's how they patter themselves. So poverty culture really does reconstruct the definitions of what it means to be a man. And that's where, and that's why you see uh, so many of these similarities and so many men struggling and you see it generation after generation after generation, because that's what's modeled and becomes the new normal. Yeah. So when I was growing up, that was very similar for me. I was, Growing up in a town where unemployment was probably hitting the second and third generation, but there was still some employment opportunities. There was free university education at that time for all. And although aspirations were low, they still existed for some people. However, now, uh, just another generation on, I'm now in my 50s and, and just maybe it's one or two more generations since since I was a, a youth, there's even less aspirations. The unemployment has risen even more. The town where I live is described as the worst place to, to live as a girl. It's the uh, It's got the largest uh, amount of poverty. It's uh, highest on knife crime and, and, and drug addiction. And f- for a man growing up, for me, it was... Uh, the only role model was Mike Tyson or Arnold Schwarzenegger or John Rambo or Robert De Niro or the local drug dealer. And out of a sense of fear and and being bullied, it was either you you behaved like that type of man for protection or you stood out and and you felt like a victim. Uh, and, And leaving that community wasn't really an option. So you had to make do with being in that opportunity, uh, sorry, being in that community, and the best way to live was to live like the rest of the community. So, yeah, when I first watched Boys in the Hoods, that kind of mirrored my life as well. There was a character called Trey, and uh, he he was the guy who the only one who was raised by a father, and he he managed to get out of of poverty, but his peers ended up dying in poverty. Uh, at a young age, being killed through drug violence. And I just wonder, why do you think fatherlessness is more prevalent? Uh, Why do you think uh, drugs and and crime is more prevalent? Because when we look at these communities, we can either see these communities as as being full of victims, or we can see these communities being full of scoundrels and sinners and and, and demonise them. What are the causes behind uh, these extreme sides of poverty? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. I think that there's a third option, right? There, it's not just that they're victims or they're scoundrels necessarily. A lot of it, honestly, is just pain. Is hmm. a lot of pain and a lot of trauma. Hmm. And this is this is what we know in the psych literature about boys, especially juveniles. Uh, between the ages of, say, probably six to the late, late teens. Mm-hmm. I mean, most crime, at least in America, is committed by men, boys and men, between the ages of 15 and 24. Mm-hmm. 
That's the window where almost all of the crime in this country in the states is committed by males in that in that age uh, group. When boys experience pain and trauma, they act out. When girls experience pain and trauma, they tend to act in. They tend to hurt themselves. They may take pills. They may cut themselves. They may get into an abusive relationship with a man, something like that. But when boys experience pain and trauma, let's say they grew up in an abusive household. Let's say they were sexually abused when they were growing up. They act outwardly. And what that does, it creates criminality in many ways. So that that so that that acting out means that they process their trauma and their pain by by committing crime, uh, by stealing something, because it gives them a sense of of euphoria. You get you get dopamine uh, from committing a crime. There's a rush of adrenaline. There's a rush of serotonin. There's a rush of dopamine. Oddly, when you stab someone, you you feel almost euphoric when you when you commit a crime. And so, so much of what we see are men who are medicating their pain and their trauma by acting out in really criminally deviant sorts of ways. They're sexually assaulting women. They are committing acts of violence against other people. Uh, they are committing property damage, right? And and that's why these pathologies often persist is that a lot of these boys who have experienced a lot of neglect and or trauma have never been treated or helped for those issues. So we're expecting a kid who who saw his mother get beat up by her boyfriend now he's 13, 14, and he's angry. He has shame. And the only way he knows how to process that shame is to join a gang and get in a fight and stab somebody. So what we tend to do is address the downstream issue of the violence and the drug addiction. But we don't often get to the root of the issue, which is helping these young men process a lot of the experiences they had of neglect and, and trauma and broken families and being around a lot of a lot of sin, mm-hmm. a lot of brokenness, a lot of debauchery, a lot of evil. I mean, one of the things that really changed my perspective on this is when I started doing a lot of work on criminal justice and I started to look at some of the crime data. And one of the things that's just a fact, it's just a, a fact if you look at who ends up in the juvenile system, you're not going to find a young lad who gets arrested at 13, 14, 15, who is from a two-parent home, and he's very close with his father. That doesn't happen on average. It's almost always, it's almost always some sort of broken relationship in the family. The parents may be together, but more likely than not, he has a horrible relationship with his father. His father, in the one extreme, can be distant and not present. So he's physically present, but not investing in the lad's heart, his soul, his mind. Or 
The dad is emasculating. He's abusive. Uh, he he shames the kid. He makes him feel like he's not a great person, and that just that just really stirs up a lot of anger. Hmm. I'll accentuate this point here. Lastly, your listeners are probably familiar with the school shootings that tend to happen here in the states. If you look at the the school shootings, particularly the school shootings at primary schools and secondary schools, in almost every single instance since Columbine in the late 1990s, every single boy or teenager or young man that took a gun into a school and shot up children had a horrible relationship with his dad. Every single one. In fact, there was one one of the shootings in in the state of Oregon. This this young lad he posted on Facebook, "I wish I had a dad." And then the next day, he went and shot up a school. Hmm. So there's very close connections, and we have really really good data on this. That fatherlessness, and by that we mean real dad deprivation of not being fathered. Hmm. Right. That, that, that when boys are not fathered well, it makes society worse because those young men are going to physically act out their anger and their pain and their anxiety and their depression. And so we tend to see two trends. Uh, we've seen this, especially in, in Northern Ireland, high anxiety, depression, substance abuse and high suicide. Right. And I know across the UK, because I've been following this data, there's a suicide crisis right now in the UK with young men. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lot of these young men are hopeless because they have never been able to process their their pain and their trauma. And and the enemy uses that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He uses that. He uses that to give them a warped sense of meaning and purpose and identity that actually hurts everybody else in their community. Mm. Yeah. And again, it's a, it's a, it's an identity that isn't to be desired and doesn't fulfill. And, and one kind of identity that I used as a mask myself before becoming a Christian, I worked as a nightclub bouncer and every night to, to carry on the facade that I was a big tough man, I needed cocaine to present that false image of myself until it came to a point and where I, I just wanted to love and be loved, but I didn't know how to do it. I'd hurt everyone who had tried to love me and um, pushed everyone away who who did love me until I got to a point where I, I threatened to end my life in front of my mother, my stepfather and my brother and praise God that she was a Christian and, and she, she prayed with me. And uh, for the first time I was able to share the struggles that I'd been carrying from being an eight year old boy. And since being a Christian, I've been working uh, either in church planting or in the local community and as a prison chaplain. And I just found lots of men, uh, well, young boys trapped in men's bodies, feeling the same way that I felt until I became a Christian. And that, many of them, the majority, like you say, fatherless, which led me to set up a ministry called 68.5 based on Psalm 68, verse 5, where God says he's a father to the fatherless. And my my hope was that we could reach a lot of these young men and boys and, and families before 
it led to prison because uh, it, it's just heartbreaking to see so many young men uh, not just neglected by their own families but forgotten by the government and 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 by the church even and for me when you look at James and we're told that religion that is pure is to love the fatherless and the widows why do you think the church uh, well I, I, can, I can't be generic but the church within the north of England within England as a whole is very slow to live love the orphan and the widow why do you think that is it's hard yeah. and and as you know it's messy yeah. it's not clean mm -hmm. it's not clean and i think that a lot of people want a really easy posh sort of christianity mm -hmm. uh, they want to practice a sort of faith that keeps their life comfortable and keeps their life easy they want a faith often, and we see this here in the States, particularly with both middle-class culture, they, they want a Christianity that doesn't make any impositions or brings any discomfort into their personal lives. So they'll write a check to a charity. They'll, they'll go down twice a year to a soup kitchen, and they'll feed people who are struggling. But they don't want to introduce or include the orphan and the widow because if you pay attention to that 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 verse in james that phrase care for that's not a two-week missions trip that's not a one-week missions trip that's not a weekend that's a lifestyle like caring for people takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and it requires sacrificial living and i think Christians have lost their countercultural identity that really should put their lives on display in such a way that their friends should ask this question. Why are you having those people in your house? Don't you know he has tattoos all over his face? He has piercings. He's probably carrying a knife on him. He's a drug addict. He's struggling. He smells bad. Like, why, why are you bringing those people into our neighborhood? Those are the sorts of questions that Christians should be being asked by their neighbors. And it really breaks my heart because, you know, in Romans 16, it makes it really clear. Right? Uh, do not. Paul is really clear. Like, make sure that you associate with people of low position. Mm. Right. He's very clear about that. Right? Do not think that you're better than them. You, you, you associate your people with, with who are in low position. And a lot of middle class and posh Christians do not ever do that. And so they miss out on the opportunities to really be a blessing to people and to offer their, their resources in terms of their personhood and their lives to guys who are, who are struggling. I think, you know, earlier you, you used the word mask, that you wore a mask. And the point of that mask is to not let anybody know that you're actually hurting, yeah. right? To hide behind that mask. And the only way that men are going to be willing to take the mask off, I think, that opens them up to the gospel is by people caring about them and loving them in, in, in spite of what they see on the outside. 
people people who are willing to love them behind the mask and let them experience being loved even though they're not perfect and they have issues and and that they're struggling and that's the kind of love that christ had for the outcasts and those whose society had rejected and that opened them up to receiving the truth that god loves them and cares for them and wants what's best for them and that god has has sent his son for the purpose of 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 giving them a proper union with the father Mm. right there's a great book by john eldridge called fathered by god and there's a workbook that goes with that the workbook is is free you can you can google fathered by god workbook and i've used that for years to help men see that god is their father Mm. and god wants to father them and what the gospel does, it not only provides them a means of repentance and faith, but it also unites them to the Father. Mm. We talk about union with Christ, which of course is fantastic, but there's also union with the Father, their Creator, and that God wants to father them through their lives. He wants to take them through the stages of becoming more and more like the sun. Mm-hmm. And that includes taking them from childhood into adulthood mm-hmm. and, and from adulthood into the stage of being sages and the wise men of the community. There's a process that God takes men through to get there. And I think that our inability to see the potential that God has for these men, we're missing out on what what the kingdom can bring through through their lives and how the gospel really frees these men from the devil who's trying to kill them, hmm. right? The devil's trying to use their pain and their trauma and their brokenness and their addictions to actually kill them. So in one sense, I mean, we're actually rescuing them from the enemy by making our by making our personal lives messy. Hmm. And I think in part what what may have happened for a lot of sort of middle class and up Christians is they they've maybe forgotten that that the Lord rescued them mm-hmm. that he really did save them from the enemy, and that if that's true, then we should do whatever we can to to put other people in the in the position to be freed from the prince of the earth Hmm. to be freed from the devil. Who's actually trying to destroy everything good in the world. And that includes people. Hmm. He's a, he's a destroyer of God's creation and God's goodness. Hmm. And there's nothing more beautiful in the whole creation than men and women made in the image of God. And that's what the enemy's trying to, to seek and kill and destroy. Are these image bearers, and these are and 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 these are, are 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 men and women that God has made. So we've lost our passion for loving our neighbors. Mm. Uh, we've lost our passion for loving people who who need the grace of God as much as we do, and maybe maybe middle class people, in in a little sense, think they deserve it mm. because. 
because they've made the right decisions, right? They went to the right schools. They are more responsible. So they're deserving of God's grace. But if you understand the gospel of grace and understand that you don't deserve it, that there's nothing that you've done that that would catalyze God to love you, when you realize that, then you're wide open to love everybody because you want to love other people in the same way that God loves you. And so you're open to having people in your lives that are not perfect because God has you in his life and you're not perfect. Amen. So, so then, so then how dare you, right? It's like the, it's like the seat of arrogance to think that you're better than someone else simply because you're middle class, mm-hmm. right? Remember in, in, Mark, in Mark 10, we see this also in, in Philippians, this idea that, that Christ came to, to serve, mm-hmm. not to be served. And what would happen? What, what would it look like if Christians across the West saw themselves as agents of service to people who are hurting and struggling and in need. Not, not that, not that Christianity has come to make their life nice and easy and comfortable, but Christianity has actually freed them. The gospel has freed them to truly serve for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think that, that in one sense, for a lot of middle-class Christians, their understanding of the gospel and their understanding of the purpose of the church and the kingdom has been too impacted by the comfort and ease of being in the West. And that has really come to challenge, sorry, it's really come to undermine their interest in living out the book of James. If you want a safe, comfortable, easy Christian life, you can't do that and live the book of James. Mm -hmm. If you live the book of James, your life will be messy and complicated, and you will have people in your life that will struggle for years, even if they believe the gospel. They're still going to struggle and be imperfect. And sometimes I think we're not as willing uh, to do that because our own understanding of the gospel is, has been too influenced uh, by the comfort idols of, of the West. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Again, I think the the misunderstanding of, of the cultures of, so when I talk about poverty culture in the UK, I'm thinking of people living in or around the council estates, um, which would be classed as the hood or the ghetto or the projects in the US. And uh, I think the problem with the church failing to reach these areas, part of it is the comfort. There's a fear of reaching communities like mine. Uh, So people just don't go because of the fear. Then you've got other people who maybe go with a savior complex thinking everyone's going to welcome me and think I'm wonderful when I turn up. It's going to be so easy because I'll, I want to help and love these people. And, uh, having not understanding the nuances of, of of the culture within council estates or for the sake of this podcast poverty culture it means people either 
stay away or come in and leave pretty quickly because they've misunderstood the task ahead. Yeah. So what what would you describe as being some of the uh, the blessings and the curses of of poverty culture? Because every every culture has common grace of God stamped on it, as as well as the the tarnish of sin, doesn't it? So what would you describe uh, those two things as being? Yeah, I you know as as I've worked over the years in a lot of these communities that are adjacent or really deeply rooted in, in a lot of poverty, there's so much beauty in the people. Mm. I mean, I mean, what one of the things that I've experienced is that these are in, in many in many com- cases, these communities have a loyalty in terms of their friendship that middle class people would be jealous of. Mm. There is a level of friendship and connection and generosity that you find in these communities that you don't see in middle-class culture. The experience of gratitude you often don't see in middle-class cultures. And honestly, this might sound a little cheeky. They're just fun. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of characters. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, people people have, you know, I mean, they've had to navigate really hard lives and they've developed a thick skin and they tell great jokes and they have great stories. And in many cases, they're just a lot of fun to be around. Just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. A lot. Lots and lots of laughter. And I think that there is an opportunity to experience the beauty of of redemption in communities where we see where you can radically and drastically see the work of of the lord you can see the holy spirit change someone's life in a in a short matter of time and you can see it mm-hmm. that one day they were involved in a lot of behaviors that were self-sabotaging and destructive the gospel comes in, the Holy Spirit changes their life, and now they're completely living differently. You can, you can see it. Mm-hmm. They talk differently. They consume things differently. They relate to their neighbors differently. They can get angry without fighting, right? I mean, they become better parents. They become better, better, better mothers. They become better fathers. They become better children. When the gospel, and you can see the drastic change. It's, it's fantastic. I think I think for me I I look forward to to that because it just confirms the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean we read it in the Bible and it confirms it because you can see it. I think some of the curses and this may be some of the reasons why people avoid it or they come in with unrealistic expectations. I think some of the the hard parts about these communities is that the work is long term. Yeah. And so in some cases, you might see the very quick turnaround, but in other cases, especially when you work with addicts, it might take years mm-hmm. of walking with someone before they're able to turn their lives around. And a lot of people aren't prepared for that. Mm-hmm. They don't have the patience for that. God has the patience for that. I mean, one of God's attributes is he's long-suffering. And if you look at the history of Israel, right now I'm, I've been going through Kings and Chronicles. 
if you read Kings and Chronicles, then you ought to be someone who has openness to suffering through people who were trying to figure things out with the ups and downs of that over the long haul. Yeah. Because that's the kind of God that we have. And I think a lot of people just aren't willing to be disappointed. They aren't willing to see their quote unquote investment in other people temporarily fail. Because one of the things you're going to see, especially with, especially if you work with addicts, is that someone can relapse. You can work with someone for five or six or seven years, and they could be having a great amount of progress, and then boom, something happens in their life. A parent dies, they lose their job, and their default is drugs. Or their default is alcohol, and they have a relapse, and then they get back living the life of addiction for a few more weeks or months, yeah. and you get discouraged, and you think, well, what have I done? All of my investment in time and money in in these in the people, they change, and then they just go back. Right. Well, that's true for everybody. <laughs> I mean, that's just the nature of of sin. Mm-hmm. We all do this. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes if you live in a posh community, no one sees it. Mm-hmm. And for people that live in the culture of poverty, you see it because they're just out with it in public. You see their sin in public. And if you're wealthy, no one sees your sin. But you return to your vomit like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's it can be discouraging for people mm-hmm. to see that you're in a community and it doesn't it doesn't appear that you're making any progress. And I think a lot of a lot of Christians aren't willing to be okay with just planting seeds. Mm. Right? You may plant a church, you might start a ministry, and you may not live to see it grow. Mm. You set it up, you die, and then the next generation is the one that God uses to grow it. Mm. And and we live in this fast food culture where we want to see the results of our work immediately. And that's not how God works. Sometimes you'll see it immediately, but oftentimes you don't. And I, I think that discourages people sometimes because that's one of the curses of, of the community. It, listen, and, and you can attest to this as someone who's worked in these communities. If you work in a community where there's poverty, you are going to get hurt mm-hmm. and be disappointed at some point by the people with whom you serve. Mm. Uh, they are going to let you down. Yeah, yeah. And you have to be okay with that. And you have to not take it personally because they're not letting you down necessarily. They're just struggling. Mm. They're just struggling with things that are beyond you and the things that you can't fix. And if you have a Messiah complex, if you don't recognize that there are some things that only the Holy Spirit can free people from you're going to get discouraged and you're going to want to to walk away and and check out and those are for me i think again opportunities to just be reminded of the gospel to be reminded of how god has always worked and and related to his people from genesis to revelation that it's actually normal and to be okay with imperfection and 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 not be able to always see the fruit of your of your work
Yeah, definitely. And again, just coming back to, if we look at how working in areas of poverty can uh, discourage Christians who were serving there, uh, as, as a Christian from one of these areas, as somebody who maybe has poverty culture, comes from that background, the reality is that many of us will be uh, hurt and let down by the church once we are in there because it's such a monocultural church within the UK. I think it's 75% or even higher of, of Christians, regular church attending Christians would be deemed as middle class and university educated. Whereas I think uh, the middle class are a smaller population than, than, than the working class. The working class and poor are missing from most pulpits and almost every, sorry, most pews and almost every pulpit. And friendship as well when i look at boys in the hood i saw these guys had such a, a loyal friendship you you mentioned it earlier there's laughing there's joking there's loyalty that's the type of friendship i had pre-christian i had friends that if i rang them at three o'clock in the morning they would turn up armed with baseball bats to protect me and now i phone christians and i've got to wait a fortnight for a coffee <laughs> so <laughs> These are some of the frustrations I've had. How can the church learn from the working class and uh, develop friendships that aren't just costly, but such a blessing uh, to be part of? That that's a again, that's a, that's a great question. I think that the, the models of friendship and community are richer, to be honest, in a lot of low income communities because people aren't protecting their comfort. And they're not protecting their materialism because they don't have anything to give other than themselves. Mm -hmm. And if your life, I mean, think, think about how middle-class people raise their children. I mean, Francis Schaeffer talks so much about this in the West. The, the gospel in the West for a lot of Christians is uh there's a there's a a catechism question, right? In the Westminster Confession, it's phrased, "What what is man's chief end?" Um, and for the American Christians in particular, in particular the sort of middle class Christians, um, to 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 glorify God and enjoy Him forever is not the answer. Uh, the 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 answer is to glorify myself and live in comfort and ease forever. Yeah, yeah. And there's a level of narcissism and selfishness that is inherent in how the middle class motivates their children to make decisions about their lives that you don't have in in low-income communities. And so I think that if we were to sort of look at the the ways in which in in low-income communities what happens when you're not living for comfort Mm. when you're not living for ease when you're not living for materialism now i'm not saying that there's no materialism in lower class culture because there is right adidas wear is huge <laughs> shoes is huge mm. women with hair, hair and nails that's huge so i'm not saying there's no materialism there but there's something about the construction in middle class culture that materialism is going to be your savior it is going to save you from a life of of discomfort and pain. And lower class communities don't see it that way. 
they see com- they see materialism as a way of giving them a sense of meaning and identity and 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 and, and some dignity mm. this is a source of dignity for me that's why i have to look this way because it it makes me feel human but in in lower class communities uh, you know people really do a much better job of of relating to each other out of deprivation much more sacrificial because they're not protecting their materialism mm-hmm. they're not protecting their comfort they're not protecting uh, their ease and so we see this internationally that that the lower a person is on the income scale the more generous they are in terms of in terms of percentage of of their of their wealth and income that they give away mm-hmm. they're much more generous because the when you're broke and you don't have any money you don't have anything you're not protecting anything yeah. right the the higher you go in the income scale the more comfort and ease matters and materialism matters and you want to protect it no matter what so i've always been a person who has you know i'm a professor i have a phd i write all these books i live a double life i always have so i often spend time in really posh kind of middle-class culture. I do that, but I'm regularly, I, 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 I on purpose embed myself in communities where people are not high income. Uh, they, they're, they're working class. And to be honest, it's, it's, a, it's, it is, like I said earlier, a lot more fun in uh, uh, many ways. So, so, I mean, what, one of the other issues that you mentioned is relationships. And one of the tragedies of modern culture is that we have bifurcated the communities. There was a time in the West where the middle class and the lower classes lived in the same communities. And then we begin to separate the middle class from the working class. And so now in a church, churches used to be, this is before the 1950s, Churches used to be mixed economically. You would have the middle class and the working class in the same parish. Once we got to the 19, probably 60, uh, 70s and 80s, the middle class moved over here in one direction, away from the working class. And so now there's no contact. The professional class, they work in offices. The working class works in the warehouse in the factory so there's no opportunities for contact anymore and i think this is how the church has failed we often talk about diversity in terms of of ethnicity immigrant immigration but i think the real diversity the church churches in the in the uk and the us and australia lack is socioeconomic diversity and if you're not sitting in the same pew or the same row with people of a different economic class you don't have compassion for each other because you don't know anyone who's in that other class than you are you just don't know anyone and so you you operate on the basis of assumptions that are probably untrue because there's that lack of of connection so for me one of the questions that i would ask 
a, a church that has a lot of resources, and I don't mean financial resources, but human capital, people that have been successful, what can you do to build long-term relationships with people who are working class? Mm -hmm. And then I would ask my working class friends, what can you do to open yourselves up to not assuming bad things about people who are our are, are middle class? Mm -hmm. I mean, what can you do also to have long-term relationships with people who are middle class and, and are not from your community? I think one of the the great opportunities that, that middle class people could have could could uh, just could sacrificially pursue, and this would be this would be crazy. <laughs> I mean, this would be sort of sort of the book of Acts like missional. This would be wild. What if middle class Christians on purpose lived below their means <laughs> and moved? adjacent to or, or embedded themselves within communities where there's working class families and open their homes up because they live in the same neighborhood and they had people in their homes and their children are playing with, with working class children. You can still send your child to the posh school, right? Those the, was it the the GS the G GSC what is it called the, the GS the GCSEs yeah 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 you can still send them to the posh school because of, I know those that test matters I get it and you're and you may be doing that anyway but you don't have to live near the posh school you can live somewhere you can live somewhere else I mean we can't do Acts two forty two where you share things in common with people that you don't live near. <laughs> How can you do that? Yeah. You can't, you can't do a drive by acts two forty two. You can't take some drones <laughs> and just drop a bag of rice and bread and eggs or something. And then, and, and stay at home and do acts two forty two. If it says that you have all things in common, that requires proximity. Hmm. And I think I think hospitality is is the secret sauce. I think it's it's the greatest weapon against poverty. And I think it's the greatest weapon against addiction. In fact, the data makes us clear that the the most effective remedy for addiction is connection. Mm. Is human connection. And for people that have some some level of stability to be a context of connection, that breaks the cycles of addiction right there. Mm -hmm. So if we're really about about Act 242, mm -hmm. then maybe we should we should live and work and and take take holidays with, with people uh, in, in ways that are different than our non-Christian neighbors. I think again. If you're middle class and Christian, you're not your your middle class non-Christian friends should be asking you questions about why you're bringing in these people, mm -hmm. these working class people in the neighborhood. They need to be asking. They need to be curious as to why you have so many working class families involved, men and women and kids involved in your life. And that's exactly what helped God used 
to save me from my addictions was hospitality of key men and their families in my life who uh, met me every morning for prayer in my house and invited me around their home for an evening meal because they knew that everyone I associated with prior to becoming a Christian took drugs and was surrounded by drugs. So I either stayed alone in between the Sunday service and the midweek Bible study and then after the Bible study till Sunday, or the church needed to show hospitality hospitality and love, or, or, or there was a huge risk of me slipping back into my addictions. And again, I think something which really encourages me about how you are, I think forthright's the, the right term to how you are in 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 being quite clear and, and blunt in your assessment of, of broken relationships, yet you're also uh, about reconciliation and, and repairing damaged relationships. And I, I heard you talk, I, I seen a, a YouTube talk where you were focusing more on, on race and you first said uh, about how some of the Puritan chaplains would tell the, the black slaves that they were loved by God and, and, and Jesus uh, died for their sins and that they had a plan for them. But because they were slaves, that plan must have meant that it would be for them to stay in slavery. And you also had a rebuke for uh, some of the white theologians and said if there's 18 white theologians and one uh, black theologian, there is a risk of people thinking that's your only black friend. And that, for me, uh, like Boys in the Hood resonated to me, your comments also resonated to me when I see the same happening in the UK, but regarding class rather than ethnicity, where uh, we're getting told Jesus loves us in our poverty, yet nothing much is being done to help us out of that. And we will see a token working class man probably talking about class <laughs> at a conference, but never asked to speak about the Trinity or penal substitution. So again, what advice, uh, similar, similar advice would you give uh, to the UK church that you've given to the church in the US? Yeah, if, if I can, if I can brag on our, our mutual friend, Marty McNeely in, in Ballymena, I think one of the, one of the awesome things I've seen about the a church that, that Marty pastors is that the hospitality really opened Ballymena Presbyterian church up to the, the sorts of things you're talking about. I mean, they have, it's interesting. It's really fantastic because some of the deacons in the church are both working class and middle class. The leaders in the church are from the middle class community and from the housing estate. Mm -hmm. There's this, there's a model of this sort of shared leadership. And I think that, that there's a humility there mm -hmm. where a lot of people assume that working class people are stupid. And they assume that working class people are working class because they're not smart enough yeah. or they lack morals or they're not mature or they're not wise. Because one of the things that we've done in the West is that we have somehow associated wisdom and intelligence with income and wealth. So we, we assume 
that wealthy people are more wise than people who aren't wealthy. Mm-hmm. And we've completely forgotten the fact that 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 wisdom, at least at least as the Bible describes it, is is the skill and the art of of godly living. And that you can be someone working class and very godly. And you and I both know some saints who work in class who almost are sinless. I mean, it's it's amazing, these people, right? I mean, you're thinking, what an amazing They just don't have a lot of money. Mm. They don't have a great job, right? They don't have, sorry, they, they don't have a job that pays a, a lot of money, mm. right? They may be pensioners, but they're holy. Yeah. I mean, they are they are disciples of Christ, and they live incredibly holy lives. And those are the people that we celebrate, not simply because of their income. So I, I think I think that that in the UK as well, we have to really remove these worldly categories that we tend to use for how we value human life, how we value leaders, mm-hmm. how we value people's. Uh, uh, capacity to offer wisdom and advice because just be because income and wealth is not a is not a sign of of wisdom and holiness and righteousness mm-hmm. we we both know some unrighteous posh people mm-hmm. and some unwise middle class people yeah. and some unholy middle class people Sometimes they become heads of state. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, historically, they may have even been in the royal family. <laughs> and there has to be a new appreciation for the fact that God can use anyone to be a leader and offer wisdom and insight in the kingdom. And I think it, we have to pay attention to the Bible's own story of this. Hmm. I mean, God chose Israel not because they were awesome, not because they had it together. They were a bunch of homeless <laughs> vagabonds roaming around the desert, barely making it. God chose them. Hmm. Jesus and the disciples. Homeless, right? That's who God used. John's out on the island of Patmos by himself, <laughs> right? Struggling. And so that that I mean, so so we want we should want to invite a level of economic diversity into local churches, into our personal lives. Because there's a richness there in, in the mixing of that. And so I think middle class people need to celebrate and look for opportunities to invite working class people to teach and to lead mm-hmm. and to disciple and, and to mentor. Uh, because wisdom is, is not about how much money you have, what kind of job you have. Mm-hmm. It's about what God has done in your, in, in your life and, and how God has used you in his, in his kingdom. Mm. yeah definitely yeah again I think uh, before we close just being reminded that uh, when challenging injustice uh, you 
I forget which talk this was on, but you, you mentioned that uh, we need to start with love when challenging injustice because we're called to to love our neighbours and even called to love our enemies. And uh, and the goal of challenging injustice is to see uh, reconciliation. We're all called to a ministry of of reconciliation. So again, I hope that everything that we've discussed uh, in this episode is seen as being spoken by in love and with the aim of of seeing reconciliation uh, but just before uh, we do go uh, god the father uh, psalm 68 verse 5 is something that is very dear to me someone who was raised as a as a fatherless family and and uh, looking at the film boys in the hood uh, one of the things that stood out to me was this one particular dad that was shown in the film, a character called Furious that was played by Lawrence Fishburne. And he was a man that I wish was my father. He was strong and he was wise, yet he was also gentle and kind and he was he was loving. It was one of the very few media portrayals of a, of a real man, of a man that you could aspire to be like. And... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the men uh, in our communities are absent. Some of our communities are described as men deserts. Uh, the men that are, are still here are often either ridiculed or feared. Uh, the women and children have a very shallow opinion of men, which is also shaped by the media. Every cartoon or program you see, the dad is always a buffoon or a violent philanderer. Uh, how are we as a church to recapture... Uh, what it means to to be a, a, a biblical godly man, and and what are some of the things that you are doing in the U.S. to help combat uh, combat uh, this this uh, false identity of what a man should be? So this is a really important issue because, as we said in the beginning, when men are confident about who they are, they're more likely to to form families. Mm and to stay married uh, and to raise healthy children. And that's the basis of a stabilized community. And I think one of the things that, that can make the church stand out is to actually celebrate what godly men should be like. I mean, to actually celebrate what it means to be a godly man, to encourage men. Uh, to mentor men, to teach men, to equip men, to resource men, because that's the countercultural thing to do. I mean, if if the church wants to be rebellious in a culture right now, particularly in the U.S. and the U.K., the Canada and, and Australia, one of the most rebellious things that, that that churches can do is say something like, "Being a man, being a godly man, being a virtuous man is great." That being a man who is committed to marriage is great. Uh, being a man who wants to provide both spiritually and emotionally for his wife and his children is great. And to celebrate that and to present and create products. It could be films, or as they say in, in Scotland, films. <laughs> It could it could be it could be films, it could be plays, 
what would it what what would it be like for some of the the rap artists in these housing estates to produce music to produce some products that actually celebrates men being good men mm. so much of the music is is the opposite mm. but you can take the exact same beat you can take the same melodies you can take the same cadence and change the content so that it celebrates and inspires men i think that we need to put the kind of men that we want lads to be in the future, we have to put those men in front of these lads. Mm -hmm. They need to get to know them. They need to experience life with them. They need to see them. They need to be able to say, oh, my gosh, this is the kind of man I want to be like when I'm 25, when I'm 35, when I'm 55, when I'm 70. But they, they, they just giving them a video or a book or a pamphlet is not enough. They need a relationship. Right. And so there is an opportunity, I think, to do something pretty radical. And on the one hand, I think be honest about some of the challenges that men face. And then secondly, to celebrate what it means to be a, a godly man. I, I always think about it this way. As as you may know, the the royal family and particularly, I believe, a Prince William uh, has taken on the cause of men's mental health yeah. in the UK. The church should be doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is the expectation that that Westminster is going to address issues of fatherlessness and, and, and youth violence. The church should be leading on that. All of the issues that are present in the lives of men that we believe some minister should be tasked with in parliament is something the church should be doing first wow. and to put the church in the uk in the position that the government is asking for the church's wisdom on how to do some of these things because the church is leading on these issues first in the local communities and celebrating marriage celebrating father uh, uh, Celebrating fathers, celebrating being a good brother, celebrating being a good uncle, celebrating being a good a good grandfather, uh, celebrating what it means to be a man who's a provider, not just economically but spiritually and emotionally, a man who who is who is protecting his community from evil, hmm. celebrating that, amplifying that, giving awards for that. If a man does something in the community that is that that is consistent with Philippians four eight, right? Whatever is true and, and beautiful, when you see a man do that, celebrate it. Yeah. Reward it. Honor it. Because you'll get more of it. There's something about men. We like being honored <laughs> and celebrated and rewarded. Yeah. So if you celebrate truth telling, you're going to get more truth telling. If you celebrate men doing things that are beautiful, you're going to get more of that. Men are going to be incentivized to do more of the things that we celebrate. Mm -hmm. If we celebrate violence, more violence. If we celebrate drug abuse, more drug abuse. If we celebrate alcoholism, that's what you're going to get. And that's what so much of the culture does in the music, in the movies, Right. Even in the media, hmm. those things get glorified. 
so I think the church can do something really radical and unique is glorifying what it means to be a virtuous and a godly man. Now, I will say this very directly. This is exactly what Islam is doing in the UK right now. They are celebrating and amplifying what it means to be a man of high moral character. Yeah. And and when I see Muslim evangelists across the UK, that's how they're that's how that's what they're using to attract young men to Islam. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be a strong man? Do you want to be a better man? Do you want to be a good husband? Do you want to be a good employee? Do you want to be someone of influence and power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And these lads are like, yes. Because that's what's get that's what you get celebrated. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, in a lot of Christian communities, we've confused confidence with pride. And 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 in working class communities, you know, uh, humility and meekness is not necessarily understating yourself, mm. hiding yourself. What humility and meekness is is more like the image of a lion, mm. is that you are strong and you are powerful, but you don't use it unless you need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we have to encourage uh-huh. in working class communities. We have to feed their desire to be heroes uh-huh. and then direct their power and their strength and their presence for good things uh-huh. and encourage that and celebrate that and honor that and put it on billboards and give awards to it and let the world know that this is what it means to be a godly man. And if you want to be a godly man, come join us. And if you do that, they'll be lined up down the street. They'll be beating down the door trying to trying to get into your church or trying to get into your community or to try to get into your charity. Uh, and that's that to me, that's that's the great opportunity to sort of counter the nonsense that we see in the movies and in the media. There's a void right now. So I'll I'll say it this way to close. Instead of just complaining about the negative, the negativity out there, do the opposite and produce these, these godly and virtuous counter products. Yeah. Yeah. Just as you were speaking there, it's just what an image of our savior, power restrained and, and, and that, that, that lion of Judah who is as gentle as a lamb. What an awesome picture our brother dr bradley it's been an absolute pleasure uh, i could spend hours uh, speaking with you but i know you're a busy man so i'll let you go but i really do appreciate your time at such short notice to join me on the in context podcast thanks so much for having me